And we're going to start over, so to speak. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 1 again, just to frame the context for where we are in, in Colossians. So we're studying chapter 3, but we'll look at chapter 1 to begin with. Colossians 1, verses 1 to 23, and then we'll go to chapter 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have, that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in heaven, in, in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you, have, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jumping forward then to chapter 3, we'll pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory." 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So far, the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 107, stanzas 1, 2, and 8. On this morning is Colossians 3, the verses 15 through 17. And it's only a few verses, so let's, let's read those again so they may be on our minds. Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So far, our text from Colossians. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is our our second week, uh, really our third week, looking at Colossians twelve uh, through Colossians three verses twelve through seventeen. We took one week hiatus to look at uh, Colossians three verse thirteen. Uh, what these verses in in general are summarizing is the new life that Christians have because they belong to Christ. What's it like, particularly as a congregation, to live in the new life that's bought for you by Christ? Uh, We've seen some application to to individuals, and there will be more to come. If you look at the verses ahead, there are verses to husbands, to wives, to slave owners and to slaves, uh, to children and, and to parents. Uh, But here we're still looking at the congregation as a whole. What's it like to be a congregation of Christ? Well, whenever we uh, get into these verses, I always want to take the the time just to remember 
the big idea here in Colossians. That's why we read chapter 1. We've been several weeks now in chapter 3, and you, you may start to lose track of, of what's happening in Colossians. Uh, but if you don't get the big picture that's set forward in chapter 1, then chapter 3 will just sound like some sort of uh, moralism or legalism. Let's just try to be better people, or, or let's try to be a better congregation, as if somehow that earns us a status uh, that, that we wouldn't otherwise have. And, and it never works. You cannot earn your way into the peace of Christ. Either you have it and you live out of it, or you, you will spend your life believing you can earn it, and you will work and work and work and never have it. Uh, so, so we need to hear these verses to the congregation in the context of the rest of the book. Uh, the big idea, as we saw in Colossians 1, is, is that we were people lost in darkness, belonging to that old kingdom, verse 21, alienated, estranged from God, and, and brought into the kingdom of Christ, uh, the kingdom of light and truth, uh, where we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we know God's grace. That's the big idea. It's presented right away in chapter 1. It's just worked out in the whole rest of, of the book. What this means for us then is, uh, as each of us as individuals and also as a congregation, you have a new identity in Christ. You are not the person you used to be. You have a new identity and a new future. Uh, because you belong to the kingdom of Christ, it changes everything about who you are, who you will be for eternity, and therefore also how you will live now. Uh, we no longer take our cue from the people we used to be and the culture that we used to be part of. But we take our cue instead from the people we are in Christ and the kingdom to which we now belong. So we said it earlier in, in this series, we live as Christians, we live kingdom down, not culture up. We live kingdom down, not culture up. Uh, and so chapter 3 is, is a delightful chapter because it gets into the specifics. Now what's that actually look like to live kingdom down, not culture up? And the first half of chapter 3 is, here are some things, some, some culture up things that need to get put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, uh, anger, lying, uh, those sorts of, of things. We saw that in, in the first part of chapter 3. And then verses 12 and onwards talk about what's it mean now to be kingdom down? What's the new life look like for us as, as Christians? Now, uh, two weeks ago, we, or two, two of my sermons ago, uh, we worked through verses 12 through 14, which focused more on interpersonal relationships, very much the horizontal. How do you relate to others within the church? Um, and, and we talked about things like um, having compassionate hearts as Christians who've been delivered uh, from, from the worst kingdom and brought into the, the kingdom of God, we've compassionate hearts. We're compassionate, or we ought to be a compassionate people. Uh, humility, meekness, we saw uh, that that's a Christian virtue, including for men. We are called to be meek. It's a, it's a sign of strength, uh, patience, bearing with one another. Uh, then then uh, last time we talked about forgiving each other and taking our cue for that, also from the way that God in Christ has forgiven us. Uh, so, so far the, the focus has really been on, on individual, interpersonal relationships within the church and, and how those are changed and transformed uh, by, by belonging to Christ. 
In verses 15 to 17, the focus is a bit wider. Um, it's restricted still to the church, how you live as a church, uh, but it's, it talks about congregational life as a whole. What's it like to be a congregation of people belonging to Christ? Um, so, so individually, there, there is that bearing with one another, forgiving each other, compassion towards one another. Congregationally, as a whole, there is also a distinct, visible new relationship at play. That's what Paul wants to talk about in verses 15 to 17. Uh, So Paul says in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. You see that one body. We are one congregation. And he says it's marked by the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. Uh, So the the first and and the, the most important thing to recognize, it's true for all of these verses, is that... The, the new vertical relationship between us and God, that peace of Christ that we now have uh, between us and God, it creates a new horizontal relationship. That new vertical relationship creates a new horizontal relationship with one another as a congregation of Christ. Uh, so uh, he says, let the peace of Christ, that's your new relationship with Christ, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you, that's, that's a plural you in the Greek, uh, to which indeed you were called in one body. Uh, so this is important particularly for, for contemporary Christianity where so much of contemporary Christianity is just restricted to this, this personal private relationship with Christ. Uh, that's not the way that, that Paul advocates we live as Christians. Uh, not only has God established peace with Christ uh, and, and you individually, but he would have us experience that peace and express that peace with one another as a body, as, as a people, as a whole belonging to God. He calls us, in fact, to be one body. He says, you were called to be one body. Uh, so it's a command and it's a calling from God uh, that, we, that we recognize one another as fellow Christians, people belonging uh, to God, and that we come together as one church, united in, in heart and, and in spirit and in mind. You think of uh, what we saw in Philippians last year where Paul says, if there's any love, any sympathy with Christ, uh, make my joy complete by being of one mind, united in one spirit. There's, there's one doctrine that we are to hold together, one truth, one mind, uh, and it creates one love. And, and he also says, let that peace rule in your hearts. No, I don't want to minimize that, that word. It's not just let the peace of Christ be in your hearts, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it have authority in your hearts. Uh, be, 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 so to speak, preaching the, the peace of Christ in the pulpit of your hearts. Preach it in the pulpit of your heart. Uh, let it then have a shaping and a determining influence on, on all that you think and do. If you have peace with Christ, let that peace take center stage and shape and determine all of your other relationships. So it stands there in a, in a place of authority in our hearts. Uh, if you have... If you think about it, if you have peace with Christ and enmity with everyone in the church, you're probably doing things wrong. You cannot have peace with Christ and then enmity 
towards all others. That peace that we have with Christ is to rule us and to create a new relationship with with one another. Uh, Paul continues in in verse 15, be thankful. Just a single two-word sentence. In fact, in the Greek, it's it's just a single uh, one-word sentence. Be thankful. Uh, Here, obviously, Paul means specifically, be thankful for what you have in Christ. It's not just a general thankfulness, though that should be there too, but be thankful for all that you have in Christ. Uh, And here too, this should be something that is, that is visible and intangible, so that you can perceive it, you can feel it, in the congregational life. Uh, do people see, by the way that, that we interact with one another, that we are a thankful people? Uh, they, they ought to. They ought to recognize, if, if the glories of the gospel are true... People ought to be able to see that. We as Christians who believe it uh, just overflow with thankfulness and that that can be seen and felt among us. After all, we were rescued from darkness. Uh, We were once alienated from God, estranged from Him and even even hostile to Him. Chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, None of us by ourselves have any claim on on eternal life. We were destined for death uh, and, and most certainly headed there had it not been for the grace of God. God never owed us His grace. He reached out with His grace, called you. Again, verse, verse 12, you are chosen, holy, and beloved. God chose you, God set you apart, and God loved you. That is something to be thankful for. And it's something that then should overflow in, in our lives. If I've been brought from a life of sin and darkness, headed towards death, and brought into fellowship with Christ, into a kingdom of light, where I've come to know God, I know His goodness. Like we sang from, from Psalm 119, your laws, your, your, your statutes are precious to me. If I've been brought from that dark kingdom into this new kingdom, uh, uh, that should produce... A thankful heart, a visibly thankful heart. A life of thankfulness ought to come naturally to every Christian who understands the gospel. Now, we recognize that the reality is that it often doesn't. We often, we know the grace that God has shown to us, and yet oftentimes we lose that sense of perspective, and it doesn't create in us that heart of thankfulness that it ought to. And so when Paul reminds us, or commands us, be thankful in that one word uh, sentence, uh, you can unpack that and, and recognize what Paul is commanding is, is that you, in the first place, remember the reasons that you have to be thankful. Uh, that you, you remember what God has done for you and then allow that to create a thankful heart within you. Uh, to, to, so to speak, cultivate gratitude in your hearts. Uh, just, just like you, you cultivate a field. You plant the seed. Uh, you, you dig the furrows and so forth. You, you guys know this better than I do. Uh, you, you water the field. You, you, there may be pruning and, and, and so forth involved. And you're, what you're doing is you're cultivating something in that field. What Paul is saying here is cultivate gratitude in the field of your heart. Cultivate it within you. Uh, remember who you were. Uh, remember who you now are. And let that bring a sense of a, an appropriate sense of wonder and gratitude into your heart. And cultivate that, that gratitude. Help it along. Cause it to grow. 
every every visitor then who who graces our doors, who walks into our church, ought to be able to perceive that here in the midst of this building is a people uh, that is thankful. For what God has done for them in Christ, it ought to be visible and tangible, uh, where where they can recognize here are people who know how good God has been towards them. Uh, and, and I want to encourage you in this respect. This was one of the first things that my wife and I, when we first came to Alora as a student, uh, that we immediately perceived. There's a lot of joy, a lot of gratitude in, in this congregation. Uh, keep it up, encourage it, uh, cultivate it more and more, deepen it, and, and encourage one another also in it. Allow that gratitude to grow. Um, one of the, the best ways that we do that is also by spending time in the Word of God. How do you remember the goodness of God? By spending time in the Word of God. And that's, how, uh, that's the next thing that, that Paul commands us. He says, let the Word of Christ Dwell in you richly. It's a beautiful way to phrase. Uh, he doesn't just say, you know, study your Bibles. Uh, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you and let it dwell in you in a way that is, that is rich. Uh, so it begins with, with reading the Bible, but it's more than just reading the Bible, isn't it? It's, it's taking the word in, uh, absorbing the word of God so that it, it dwells in us and, and even lives within us. And, and not only lives, but lives richly. So it, it produces fruit uh, within us. It, it fills uh, the way that we think. It, it, and then it produces fruit in every part of our lives. That's what it means to, to let it dwell in you richly. It's taking the Word of God in to such a degree that it, it becomes part of who you are. And it expresses itself in all that you do. Well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you put the Word of God in you? In that way, uh, Paul specifically mentions two ways of doing it. Uh, so the next, the next phrases there are, are ways of causing the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Um, they're, they're, they're subordinate uh, commands, subordinate sentences. Uh, so he speaks first of teaching and admonishing one another, and then of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, the teaching and admonishing uh, is, is why we, we have things like home visits, where you'll, you'll read the Word of God, you'll discuss the Word of God, um, and then you'll talk about how does, this, how does this work itself out in your life. It's also why we do things like, like Bible studies uh, in, in the various uh, Bible study societies that we have. Uh, the goal in Bible study is precisely this, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, in other words, to help each other take in the Word of God and make it part of your, your way of thinking and, and feeling. Um, this is why Bible study, uh, for, for those of you who are in, in the different Bible studies, this is why Bible study always needs to go beyond simply asking what does the text say and, and what does the text mean. Now, it, it has to start there. Uh, I've been to Bible study societies where you almost skip that question because you want to get to the practical, you know, what does this mean for me? But you, can't know, you cannot know what does this mean for me if you don't first know what does it mean, what's it, what's it saying. Uh, so it must ask those questions, but it also must go beyond those questions. It does have to get to questions like, here's where this text convicts me, or encourages me, or corrects me. Uh, or, or questions like, are we believing this? Or if we believe this, uh, how would this change the way that, 
that we live? Uh, are we living uh, like we know these things to be, to be true? Uh, or, or saying, you know, here's my situation. How can I put this command into practice in, in this situation? It, so it has to touch down into our lives. That's, that's the whole point of Bible study. To cause the Word of God to dwell in you. That's the, the taking in. But then also to be rich within you. That's the, the exercising of, of the Word of God that you've taken in. It's, it's producing fruit in your life. Uh, the goal uh, is, is, is for the Word to dwell in us and produce fruit from us. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's the goal of Bible study. That's why you do it uh, as a group and not by yourselves. Many of these things you could do by yourself. You take it in, you think about how will I apply this. But as, as a group, you can also encourage, correct, uh, admonish one another. And that's what Paul tells us to do. Teaching and admonishing one another. Uh, now that's, that, that may be uncomfortable at times. Sometimes you, you step out of your comfort zone and you say, uh, look brother, look sister, uh, here's what I see going on in your life. Here's where the word of God may, may be correcting you or, or, or changing the course of, of your life. And then also asking for that feedback from, from others, saying, here's what's going on in my life. How might the word of God correct me uh, here in, in, in this situation? Uh, that's why we do this together instead of uh, on our own, uh, so that we may speak the word of God to each other, uh, and, and also so that we may pray with one another. Uh, when, when Bible study is, is done well, the end result ought to be a, a natural outworking of praying for and with one another. So Paul says, teach and admonish one another, the other way that he also says we are to cause the Word of God to dwell in us richly is by singing. Uh, verse, uh, Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. No other people, no other religion sings like Christians do. Uh, we are absolutely unique in, in that way. Other religions, some of them do sing. None of them sing the way that Christians do. Uh, there's a reason that most branches of Islam don't sing. There's no, there's no such thing as congregational singing. Uh, but we as Christians do. And the reason we do is because we've been brought into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's a very good reason to sing. Uh, if we know there is, there is no condemnation, despite all of our sins, all of our failures, there is no condemnation, and we are heirs to eternal life, that's a good reason to sing. And, and singing then, as Paul teaches us here, singing has a special power uh, to, to take the word that we sing and bring it down into our hearts. Uh, John Calvin uh, always spoke very beautifully about, about singing and the power that singing has to cause the Word of Christ to reach down into our hearts in a way that, that simply reading it does not accomplish. Uh, and that's why we insist as a Reformed Church on congregational singing. Now, this is one of the greatest accomplishments of the Reformation. Uh, it's bringing singing back to the congregation. 
Uh, it, it, it happened that over the centuries, singing, uh, congregational singing that once used to characterize the early churches, they sang, and, and all of the, the records uh, by Justin Martyr and these other church fathers on what happened in these ancient Christian services, they sang. That's, that's a consistent testimony. Uh, but it happened over the years that that, that singing was slowly relegated to, to choirs and, and, and sometimes altogether away from the church and off into, into monasteries. The, the reformers in the 16th century recognized that was a terrible loss for the church. As Christians, we need to be a singing people. It's good for us to sing. Uh, now, it, yeah, sure, it's, it's relaxing. It may be encouraging to, to listen to a choir. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, uh, to, to meditate on the beauty of, of, of what's being sung in a choir. But there's no replacement for congregational singing, for, for singing the words yourself, uh, giving your own personal amen or affirmation to what you are, uh, to, to what is being said. Uh, we need this. Uh, we take the word of Christ by singing and we bring it down into our hearts. And, and, and as the reformers would say, we cause it to flow through our veins. We take the word of Christ and put it into our blood uh, as we sing. Now Paul talks uh, here about three different kinds of songs. He says psalms, hymns, and, and spiritual songs. Uh, it, it's, it's funny how, how the English translation is, is taken that way because people assume that Paul meant you know the Psalms, 150 Psalms, the hymns of the 18th, 19th century, and then contemporary Christian music. That's your spiritual songs. Obviously, Paul didn't have those categories uh, in, in his day. Uh, that's, that's clearly not, not what he meant. It's a nice, clean distinction, um, but it's probably not what the text means. Uh, most scholars uh, argue that Paul's not even making clear-cut distinctions between what's a psalm, what's a hymn, what's a, a spiritual song, but just trying to, to, to say, sing the full range of Christian music, the full spectrum. Uh, in, in fact... You can even find all three of these terms, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, applied to the psalms themselves in different places. Uh, we, uh, we, the Greek word uh, psalm, for example, has, has its roots in, in, in the word pluck, like to pluck a string. Uh, so there's a theory that maybe the, the psalms of the psalms, so those psalms that call themselves psalms, uh, were, were perhaps accompanied by, by stringed instruments. It's, maybe it's just... It's just a theory. But we saw, even, even this morning, in Psalm 92, it's, it calls itself a psalm, somehow distinguished from, from the other psalms. Uh, so th- there were distinctions uh, back in the Old Testament, perhaps also in Paul's day, but there are distinctions that are, are simply lost to us today. Uh, so you have, you have psalms that are called psalms. You have others that are called songs. Uh, you might say a psalm of David, a song. Uh, so it clearly meant something by that. We don't know uh, what that is. Um, and also hymns. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, for example, it describes uh, the, the Lord's Supper. And it says, after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, now we know from Jewish tradition that the, the hymns they would have sung would have been uh, the, the Hillel Psalms. That's from uh, Psalm 113 to 118. Those, they, they sang those at the end of, of Passover. Uh, so even the Psalms could be referred to as, as hymns. Uh, so all of these terms could apply 
even just to to different psalms. Uh, That being said, the word psalm certainly does by the New Testament uh, often specifically refer to the 150 psalms as it does does today. Uh, So even if we don't know exactly what are the distinctions Paul is making, one thing we can say for sure is Paul is encouraging us to sing the psalms. That, that at least is a clear uh, conclusion. And that's what the church has done throughout history, all the way back to the earliest centuries. Now, they didn't sing the psalms exclusively, but they did sing the psalms. And there's, there's never been an age in church history where the psalms were not sung. Uh, so I want to make the case, then, that, that we as a church ought to be singing the psalms as a means of taking the word of Christ and causing it to dwell richly within us. I'll explain in a minute why I do not believe we we ought to restrict our singing to the psalms. Uh, But it's a sad development in in so much of the the contemporary Christian church, particularly the the evangelical church, uh, that, uh, that we don't sing the psalms at all. Uh, there are many, many uh, churches that they, all they have are, are 18th to 19th century hymns and contemporary Christian uh, uh, songs. They don't have the psalms at all anymore. That is very out of step with church history. Uh, the Christian church uh, from the very beginning and, and literally throughout the centuries never stopped singing the psalms. And, and they've always regarded the, the psalms as even the primary hymn book of, of the church. Uh, and, and again, we, we can see this even in the Jewish traditions. Again, as Jesus sang, as they celebrated Passover, they sang a hymn which referred to one of the Psalms as the Jews did. Um, in Acts 4, uh, when Peter and John were arrested and then they were ordered not to preach the gospel any, any longer, uh, it, it says... It says the church was gathered there praying for them and they lifted their voice to God with one accord and then it it records what they sang and the words they they are recorded as having sung were were Psalm 146 and Psalm 2. There's the earliest evidence of singing in the Christian church and they're singing psalms. Uh, The Apostle James, he writes, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Uh, The Christian church right from the, the earliest centuries then, has been singing psalms. Uh, Tertullian, he was uh, fr- a church father in the 2nd century, and also Jerome in the 4th to 5th century, they both testify that psalm singing was an essential part of the worship of, of their day. Uh, also, uh, Chrysostom, he was the, the, the best thing, you, the closest thing you have to, to a, uh, a celebrity preacher of that day. He was this famous preacher in the 4th century, uh, he, he advocated strongly the singing of the Psalms. Likewise, also Augustine, uh, the one church father known by, by the Protestant tradition, Augustine also advocated the singing of the Psalms. Uh, in fact, his, his most famous books are, are his Confessions and then his, his book, The City of God. And, and both of them quote the Psalms more than they quote any other book of the Bible. Uh, they are deeply soaked in in the Psalms, uh, when and even even when congregational singing started to slip away from the church and was was relegated to monasteries and, and things like that, uh, even then it was primarily the Psalms that these monks and nuns would memorize and sing in the monasteries. 
the Christian church then has always sung the Psalms. They do that because the Psalms are the inspired word of God. Uh, as, as Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. If that's true, that's true also of, of the Psalms. Uh, also, when the Lord Jesus, after he arose, after he rose from the dead, there's the story in Luke 24 of, of him walking on the, on the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples. And, and he's explaining to them how all Scripture pointed to him. And, and it specifically says, uh, he said, These words that I spoke to you while, while I was with you, uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So we sing the Psalms because they are music that is given to us by God himself through, through David, through these other psalmists, uh, that point us to, to Christ. Uh, and, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here too. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing these, uh, these songs. Uh, so making the Psalms our, our primary psalm book soaks us in the word of God. And, and by doing so, it, it causes our theology and, and also our, our, even our emotions to be strong biblical uh, emotions. Uh, in, in an age of, of theological pessimism, this belief that you know, the world's just going to get worse and worse and worse until the church is this, this last holdout right before Christ comes and, and saves us, uh, that's, that's the dominant theology in contemporary Christianity, uh, the Psalms remind us that, no, God is mighty. God is powerful. Uh, every other God will be put to shame. We have no excuse for that kind of, of pessimism. Uh, the, the Psalms remind us that the, the Messiah Christ is reigning and, and is, is triumphant. Uh, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Or, or Psalm 68, God will arise and his enemies will be scattered. Those who hate him will flee before him. The Psalms remind us of the triumph of God. Or, or Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. There's a triumphant note that, that is carried throughout the Psalms that ought to be also on our lips as we sing them. Uh, the, the, the Huguenots, the French reformers, uh, as they were working for the renewal of France, uh, and they were, they were probably the most persecuted group um, in, uh, of Protestants in, in that day, they were slaughtered on the battlefields, they were hunted down, they were burned at the stake, and yet uh, it, was, it was recorded by many reformers that even as they were dying, the words that were on their lips were the words of the Psalms. Uh, one author put it this way, a beautiful quote. He said, when, when there was iron in men's souls and they needed it in their blood, then they sang the Psalms. And that was true of the, the reformers and, and, and the persecuted church of that day. When there was iron in their souls but they needed it in their blood, they sang the Psalms. The Psalms also contain uh, the, the full range of, of human emotion. Uh, they're honest, honest to the core. Uh, there are songs of joy, but there are also many songs of, of lament, uh, and indeed far more than, than our, our contemporary hymns. Uh, they, are, they are far more human 
than, than most of our hymns dare to be. Uh, too many of our, our modern hymns just gloss over uh, the, the suffering that we experience and, and hurry on, on to praise and worship. But the Psalms often, often hang on. They, they hang around in that suffering to really express uh, the, the depth of, of our, our suffering. Uh, they, they express our sorrow. And, and because the, the, that, that, that is the case, because that's where we are. If we are suffering, we don't hurry through it. We express it. We lay it before God. Uh, there are also psalms, psalms that express anger, uh, righteous anger, hatred against sin and evil, uh, and cries to God for justice against our enemies. We don't, we don't find these things in so many contemporary hymns. And, and sadly, this is even one of the reasons why, why the modern contemporary church often chooses not to sing the psalms. There's this fear that, that these laments and these, these cries for justice are somehow no longer appropriate in, in the Christian age. And that's simply not true. Uh, again, the church has sung these throughout its history. Uh, psalm 69, in fact, which is probably the, the heaviest imprecatory psalm, the heaviest cry for judgment um, that you'll find anywhere in the psalms, is quoted four times in the New Testament, uh, and, and three of the four on the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. He cried out to God for justice. Uh, the reality is these, these psalms were written for the church as the church experiences persecution and, and injustice. Uh, especially today, which is uh, November fourth, the day of, of uh, uh, the day for, of remembrance of the persecuted church, uh, the Psalms ought to be on our lips. We ought to cry out to God in fellowship with our brothers and sisters who are being uh, being persecuted. Uh, the Psalms are there for them, in particular, that they may sing these Psalms with with hearts crying out to God, and and we then we should join the church. In this, uh, even if we ourselves uh, in this present moment in history are not suffering the same way that our brothers and sisters are elsewhere, uh, we, we ought to, to join them in, in our hearts. Um, James, uh, the Apostle James reminds us to, to weep with those who weep. Even if we're not experiencing the same thing, we ought to weep with them and for them. Uh, the author to the Hebrews also reminds us, remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated because you also are in the body. Uh, one way that we do this is by singing these psalms with them. Uh, that being said, there are, there are groups of, of Reformed churches that also insist on only singing the psalms. Uh, the argument is, is fairly straightforward. This is the inspired word of God. Why would you sing anything else? A pretty, pretty compelling argument. Hard to argue with that. Uh, now, it's true, we ought to stay very close to the Psalms precisely because they are the inspired Word of God. That keeps, as, as we said earlier, our emotions and our theological emphases, it keeps them biblical. Uh, but that does not mean we can only sing the Psalms. And right from the beginning, the Christian church also sang hymns. It's, the, it's also just as unanimous a testimony going right back to the beginning. They also sang hymns. Uh, 
So sometimes the argument is made that this command in Colossians to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs refers to some sort of threefold classification of the psalms. Uh, there's, there's no evidence at all that that is true. Uh, yes, it's true that some psalms are called psalms, others called songs, others called hymns, but there was no conception of this, this threefold classification of what's a psalm, what's a song, uh, what's a hymn, as if it all refers to, to the 150 psalms. Uh, that, that just didn't exist. The problem with this view that, that we're only to sing the psalms is that, for one thing, it, it fails to reflect on church history, since that's not what the church has done right from the beginning. Uh, but also it fails to recognize that when God does new things, his people respond with new songs of praise. And, and that is a, a, a biblical command. Uh, Psalm 98, verse 1, O sing a new song to the Lord, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So we sing a new song in response to God's new acts of salvation. That doesn't mean we stop singing the old songs, but it also means we do write new ones. Uh, We should continue to write and sing new songs and hymns of praise to God. And we should be careful not to let those new hymns eclipse the, the Psalter. Uh, the Psalms should always remain the core of, of our songs. That's why we as, as, a, as Canadian Reformed Churches have a rule. We've, we've set a maximum of 100 hymns so that there would not be as many or more hymns than we have, have Psalms. So we, we, we put a rule in place for that so that the hymns do not eclipse the, the singing of the Psalms. But we are, we are to recognize that we are called to sing a new song when God, when God does new things. And you see this in Scripture. Uh, for example, Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, he sang a new song when it was revealed to him who his son would be. Uh, or, uh, and, and that song is now our, our hymn 18. Uh, or the song of Mary, when she learned that she would carry the Messiah, she sang a new song to God, and that's now our, our hymn 17. Uh, so we also, when we look back at Scripture, at the coming of Christ, at His death and resurrection, we recognize these, these pivotal moments in history where God has worked new wonders, and we sing new songs. Um, we, we do this even with certain chapters of history, too, where, where, where new things happened. Uh, you think of Isaiah 40, um, comfort, comfort, ye my people. We turn that into a hymn because that was a pivotal moment in Israel's history. Or Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant. And we recognize that's, that's a pivotal prophecy in Scripture. We turn it into a hymn. And the church today continues to write new songs, and it is a good and a biblical impulse. It's a unique gift that God gives to, to musically gifted Christians that they are able to write new hymns. And very few of them will, will um, become part of the church's uh, almost uh, timeless hymn book. There's a few of these, like Amazing Grace, uh, some of these songs that become part of the church's timeless uh, hymnal. Uh, and, and every now and then, that, that happens. God gives Christians the gift of writing new hymns uh, that become part of the church's, uh, the, the songs that the church sings. So Paul encourages us to do this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Finally, Paul says in in verse 17, Whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You can summarize that as, as testifying, letting your life testify to the grace of God in Christ. Uh, you can see how, how, how radical our new identity in Christ is by the fact that Paul can say something like this, let everything you do from the moment you wake up Throughout the day to the moment you go to bed, let everything be done in the name of Jesus Christ. So great is what Christ has done for us. If you've been brought, again, from darkness into light, then everything you do in your life ought to reflect that glorious truth. Now, when we visit the sick or the needy, we do that in the name of Christ. Uh, When we give to others, as we give also here in the worship service, we give in the name of Christ. When we serve, we do it in the name of Christ. Uh, When we encourage and support one another, that too we do in the name of Christ. Uh, We do all these things as a people who belong to Christ, making it clear that that's who we are and that's uh, the, the, the gospel message that we also want to convey by what we do. Uh, So once again, it comes back to the big idea here in Colossians. Since Christ has rescued us from darkness, brought us into light, uh, we take our cue from that new identity, that new future, and then we look ahead to where we're going, and we say, who will we be then? Then let that be who I am now. What will the kingdom of God be then? Let that then be the kingdom of God in our midst among us now. Uh, How are we going to live in that kingdom? Then that's how we're going to live now. Uh, In the next several verses after our text, Paul also applies this to to family relationships and to work relationships. It gets very practical, and we're going to be there then for several weeks, asking this question, how is this an outworking of, of this verse 17? Doing everything in the name of Christ. So as a husband... You are a husband in the name of Christ. As a wife, you are a wife in the name of Christ. As a son, a daughter, as a master, as a servant, we do all things in the name of Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. For now, though, let's sing and let's rejoice and give thanks to God for all He has done with us or had done for us in Jesus Christ and consider how we may make this congregation a place where the name of Christ is lifted up high. Amen. Let's sing together from Psalm 116, stanzas 7-9.